This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Francis Backhouse is a well-regarded naturalist and journalist, as well as the author of several books on beavers, including Once They Were Hats. Though known for much of her work on beavers, Frances has also written about several species of bird, women in history, and is now taking on the fascinating and majestic grizzly bear. Frances joined Defender Radio to have an in-depth conversation about her path from scientist to writer, what she's learned about beavers and bears along the way, and how others can find their own ways to working on topics they're passionate about. A great place to start, and it's likely a question you've heard before, is how did you get to where you're at? How did you become a champion of wildlife, a a journalist, a freelance writer, and an author? Like a a lot of very (laughs) impressive titles. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, I started um, when I went to university, I was went to study biology. So I have a a degree in zoology, um, and when I finished university, I uh, worked as a park interpreter, park naturalist. Um, there weren't a lot of jobs for biologists at that point. So in the off season, I started writing. I realized I really enjoyed sharing my interest in nature and, and my love of nature with people um, in, during the, the park interpreter season. And so then I went on to, to start writing about it. Um, I did later work as a biologist, as a field biologist and environmental consultant, um, but that love of writing had been stirred up. And so I gradually shifted more to to writing. Um, And Beavers came along at a time when I was uh, looking for a project and kind of took over my life. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's what they tend to do for a lot of us. I found over the years is you start you start down a path of, oh, this is interesting. You know, this is our our national animal, or you know, this this coyote is similar to a dog, or this bear is just hungry. You start sort of looking down the path of some of these animals, and before you know it, you're cartwheeling down a hill, uh, learning everything about them and getting involved with organizations and policy and all kinds of other fascinating stuff. Is that kind of the the same? I mean, imagine you would have had a lot of knowledge walking into it, but that same exciting adventure of, oh, what about this? And start you just start with the questions and looking for answers? Yeah, very much so. Um, it, it really was a, a, an adventure of learning. Um, as a Canadian and, and as someone with a biology degree, I thought I knew a few things about beavers, but what I didn't realize was that there was just so much more to know about them. And... Um, the, the really interesting part for me was when I started really exploring, um, you know, how, how do we live with these animals who share this human, the characteristic we have as as humans of shaping our environment and, and beavers and humans are really the two animals in the world that shape the environment most dramatically. And so we don't always see eye to eye on how we're going to shape the environment and it makes for some really interesting dynamics and so i think that's you know beyond the the basic biology i just got very interested in our relationship with beavers and and how how we share the landscape with them 
Yeah, and that's that's been the uh, the crux of your work. I mean, you've got two books on the subject. Once they were hats in search of the mighty beaver, which is well regarded, uh, and everyone I know, including myself, who has read it, loves the book, uh, and it's talked about and bandied about as a book one must read uh, mm-hmm. with great frequency. But you've also then got a, and I'm not sure if what the age group for it is, but you've got beavers radical. Uh, rodents and ecosystem engineers, which is, oh, there it is right at the bottom. I'm good at research. Uh, ages nine to 12. So yeah. that fun sort of middle school or up to middle school age group, I guess. Uh, and, and I'm curious, and I ask this largely as a writer, I've, I've not written in this way. My background is news and advocacy, but what was it like to have the, the, the breadth of knowledge you do uh, and the experience you do, and then take all of it and put it into this fascinating naturalist book once they were hats, and also take that same amount of knowledge and passion and write a, uh, a, a young adult or a children's book about very much the same stuff. Uh, wh- what was that experience like? Because that's two vastly different audiences and ways of learning, I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, I always find that I gather so much more information than I can fit into whatever platform I'm working in, yeah. uh, whether it's a book or uh, I did a radio documentary on beavers. I'm constantly having to cut back. And of course, with the kids book um, for, you know, age nine to 12, they can take in a lot of information, but I still had a limited word count. And so it was a real, real struggle to decide what can I put in what do I have to leave out? Uh, one thing I loved about doing that book, though, was the visual element because it's full of photos. And so those pictures could tell a lot of the story as well. Yeah. And, you know, beavers are just such engaging animals um, visually. So so it was it was fun to be able to incorporate that. Um, they certainly have a lot of personality that is difficult, I would think, to communicate, particularly in, uh, and again, I, I don't know that age group, but I do know when you're looking at a younger reading audience, there are some strict publisher rules on word count and per page word count and things like that as well. So it's, it is a, for those who have not looked into it, it at times can be very restrictive in terms of how you write. Yes. Yeah, very much so. And I didn't want it to be um, just a lot of facts, just, you know, throwing a lot of facts at kids. I I think um, the best way to communicate with people is through stories. And so, you know, how was I going to tell this story, but it's not a storybook. Um, So beavers are obviously a character, but people respond well to human characters. And so I wanted to bring in the human element and I decided to um, have short profiles of young people who have been involved in beaver conservation work in some way. And that turned out to be my favorite part of writing the book. I I love talking to these kids about their experience, whether it was a citizen science um, habitat research project or wrapping trees to protect them against uh, beavers or um, working with um, and the the Metau Beaver Project with Mm -hmm. uh, some kids who were helping take care of the beavers that are going to be released. You know, each of them were so enthusiastic about their experiences. And it really showed me how having that kind of hands-on connection with conservation um, turns kids into advocates for the species that they're working with or the, the ecosystems that they're involved with. 
And I was actually, I just had a conversation today with someone talking about beaver coexistence, which is a lot of the work we do with the fur bears and policy and whatnot. And the difficulty that occurs in trying to express why we shouldn't do what's always been done and instead look to some of these new solutions. So we talk about flow devices, tree wrapping, coexistence, the, the gambit of options. And the difficulty is we can tell people day in and day out the benefits and the, show them the evidence, but it's really showing them the successes that mm-hmm. is ultimately one of the change makers. And I think, you know, stories in that regard are such a, a huge motivator for it. And as you said, when you start educating young people and showing you can uh, be empowered and you can be a part of solutions locally and you can help local ecosystems and wildlife, uh, I, I think that is a very powerful thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Not just for a writer to be able to engage in, but then for our species, let alone beavers. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's right. And, you know, um, kids come to things with fresh eyes. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we've um, had a, a a relationship with beavers um, that's been the same for a long time, a mostly an adversarial relationship. Um, but kids are coming to it with fresh eyes and and more open to the opportunity to do things differently. So, I mean, certainly there's a lot of adults who are are doing things differently now as well. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes it's, it's easier to uh, reach the kids and, and get them to see how we can change what we do. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes they they go on to educate the adults. Yep. Why well, I, I will use the reference uh, and age myself slightly, but I remember in the early, late 80s, I guess, when recycling programs were coming, the blue box program was coming out to where I lived. And I think I don't remember my parents talking much about it. And even to this day, my mom doesn't fully appreciate necessarily the program. But I remember as a student being given a little, you know, ruler that explains, well, this is how you recycle and why we recycle and things like that. And a huge amount of the education to get people using this new recycling program came by talking to students and saying, when you go home and when you're at school, here are things you can do. And then parents just going, okay, this is what we're doing now. I I, I think it's got to be similar to how you know, there are a great number of parents out there who know far, far more about Paw Patrol than they ever thought or wanted to, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, there are some amazing opportunities in that way. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And I also then wonder if it ends up having some kind of influence the way children are able to pick up on language and new ideas, like you said, so rapidly of giving them this information now in 10, 20, 30 years when they're in positions to make decisions or be adults and be influencing the world in major ways. If not only will they then have an appreciation for beavers very specifically in ecosystems, but that desire to find solutions. Because Mm -hmm. uh, again, I think that's a large part of that kind of advocacy. It's not just that these animals are awesome and we should protect them, but that there are solutions that require a little bit of perspective challenging or a little bit of pivoting in how we perceive something. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I got to think there's going to be a connection that way too. Yeah, very much so. And and the other thing about um, writing for kids that came to me as I was doing it, I wasn't thinking about this going in, but you know, kids are are faced with a lot of 
bad news. Well, we're all faced with a lot of bad news on the environmental front these days. And so I I think it's really important to give kids hope, um, give, let them see that there are solutions, um, make, allow them to, to feel empowered to, to take part in making change. And so that was the other thing about showing kids who were actively involved is, uh, letting that be a model and an example for the readers that um, they they don't have to just feel despair, but they can they can feel empowered to to try and make change in the world. Um, because we've we adults have, have set them up with a, a pretty challenging future. And um, so we need to help them um, prepare for that future and move forward. And I hope that that they will um, you know, be good decision makers when they get to the point where where they're able to to be making the decisions. Um, yeah, and and I think with my weirdly both optimistic and jaded worldview is they kind of have to be better. Um, <laughs> there isn't really a choice to not be better at this point, That's uh, right. both from choices that have been made for them and where we're at. Um, and away from doom and gloom onto something. I found this very interesting when we were emailing about setting up this chat, uh, you told me you've been working on a new or a new book, and this is not about beavers. And I, for one, have known you as a beaver writer for a long time. So it's exciting to hear now that you are looking into other things as well. And not that you never did, but, um, could you tell us a bit about the, the pivot or the new direction you're going in with this new book? Yes. Yeah. Um, so I haven't always written about beavers, but it certainly has been a preoccupation for yeah. quite a while. And the new book is about grizzly bears, uh, which interestingly is is actually uh, circling back for me because when I was working as a field biologist, I did a, a five month uh, co- contract um, doing grizzly bear research in northern BC. So um, this is a, a species that I was um, interested in and uh, very close to, literally very close to at one time. Um, and so now to be writing about them for for kids has uh, been really fun, a fun return to um, that part of my knowledge and also learning all the things that uh, all the new information that's been found, all, all the research that's been done um, since I was working on them. So um, this book also will be for nine to 12 year olds. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, that theme of coexistence really comes up in this one again. Um, obviously, coexistence with grizzly bears is uh, different, looks different than coexistence <laughs> with beavers. Yep. Some, some uh, different unique situations that may arise. Yeah, that's right. Um, but again, I think there's a real opportunity to reach kids and say, you can be part of this. Um, obviously, lot, lots of these kids aren't going to be living anywhere near where grizzly bears are or even visiting grizzly bear country. But um, the, the same things that um, contribute to coexistence with grizzlies contribute to coexistence with black bears, uh, you know, especially ensuring that they don't become food habituated and um, don't get into trouble because we set them up for trouble. So, yeah. And, and then um, again, it's a really fascinating animal to, to delve into their lives and 
Um, the visual element's going to be great again. Oh, yeah. um, they're such magnificent animals. I've been looking through some of the photos that we'll be using in the book and the hard thing is going to just be choosing which ones. <laughs> no kidding. Grizzly bears are one of those animals when you 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 see them, um, and it's this. There is a magnificence that cannot be described until I think it's experienced. And mm -hmm. there's not a lot of things in the world like that, but seeing a grizzly bear is certainly one of them. Um, so it's it's an exciting subject. Uh, I'm curious, we're talking about the coexistence factor being a part of it, and there's obviously going to be a lot of differences. One is semi-aquatic, one is a giant bear, mm -hmm. um, one is relatively small. You know, there's mm -hmm. a couple of quick ones, um, similar color palettes maybe, but yeah. in terms of other similarities, or are there similarities in what we look at in terms of coexistence for beavers that could also be applied to bears or specifically grizzly bears from what you've read? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. Well, I think it has mostly to do with the mindset. So, mm -hmm. so not so much the specific actions, but changing our mindset to really see ourselves as, as part of nature, not separate from nature, yep. and that we are just another animal on the landscape um, and so that we're sharing that landscape with with other animals and not always saying our our needs have to come first but making room for the needs of of those other animals on the landscape absolutely and i know a lot of the uh, uh research that's coming out right now or some of the research coming out right now is also looking at issues like how grizzly bears will use rail lines and uh to get around which is not a new issue but i know uh, i believe it's clayton lamb i want to say has been doing a lot of uh publishing on that subject matter and uh, topics like that i just it, it it is very interesting to me and for me it's it's learning to ask questions on the beaver issue kind of has then helped me then learn to ask questions about other animals. They may be wildly different situations, but it again can be, well, why are they here? Mm -hmm. not, not just that they're here, but let's ask why, why are they right here, this spot? And is the issue then this spot or is it the animal? Yeah. Um, right. Like looking at it from that perspective. And I think that is true across uh, coexistence concepts. So, it, it is fascinating that yeah. there are parallels in that way, I think. Yeah, very much so. Um, interesting, you should mention Clayton Lamb because he he is in will be in the Grizzly Bear book. Oh, I, awesome. I've interviewed him and um, he's he's a part of it. Um, but, you know, the, that question of, uh, you know, why are they here or, or um, how, how, how does this animal being here affect what we do? I, mm -hmm. It reminds me actually that there's another parallel between the beavers and the grizzly bears is we pushed them out, we killed them off. So we spend a lot of time as settlers um, colonizing this continent in the absence of these animals. And now where they're coming back, um, we have more conflict because we got used to not having them there. I mean, this is yeah. very true of beavers, but it's also true of grizzly bears in in the lower 48 states and southern BC, southern Alberta, where they have made some, some gains um, because of conservation efforts. But now as the number of grizzly bears increases 
and the number of humans increases, um, the conflict increases. So I guess thinking back to the fact that the, the historic numbers were much, much higher. So even as, as the numbers are increasing, um, the, those numbers aren't out of control. They're just barely getting back to what they yeah. were. Yeah. And, and it's interesting how the perspective of that gets influenced so severely. Uh, for example, and, and you may have heard this too, um, I will hear uh, trappers say, well, we've never had as many beavers as we have now. And from what I know, that's just blatantly false because we used to have a whole lot of beavers. And we still have not, as you've noted, have not come back to that post-colonization or pre-colonization level. Uh, yeah. But there is a, then a disconnect too of what was here. And mm -hmm. I, I feel that there, there must be some valuable lessons in that in being able to look at, well, here's where we are now, yes, but we need to understand how we got to here and the fact that we're not in a new situation that appeared out of nowhere. We're in a situation that we have created over the course of the last 400 years. Um, which yeah. again can be difficult to offer to the general public, I think. Yeah. Um, in writing for kids, is that something that you're able to take on at all or tackle? Or is it something that, is it one of those, this would be great to include, but hardcore word count? Yeah. No, um, it was very much part of um, both of these books, um, looking at the history of, of how we got here, um, looking at the, the pre-colonial history, what happened as uh, settlement, European settlement moved across the, the continent and what was the, the impact of that. And, and also drawing on indigenous knowledge of these species and their relationships and, and looking at what those relationships were and in many cases still are. Um, and I think particularly with grizzlies that's come up for me is is understanding the the indigenous relationship with grizzlies the the ongoing relationship and the the work that's being done uh, by some first nations uh, on the conservation front um, it's really impressive and and I've been really happy to be able to bring that into the book too well that's awesome I I love some of the work and I know a lot of it's happening in BC um the combination of traditional ecological knowledge and modern sciences and, and finding ways to do more by combining them. And I, I cannot remember who specifically did this, but um, it was a, a First Nations or an Indigenous group that assisted, I think it was with the Smithsonian Institute, in using fur catches instead of other more invasive sampling uh, or data sampling efforts. This this is a few years back now. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm uh, trying to remember titles of a paper I read you know, several years ago, and the last two years has felt like 20. So I can't remember. But yeah. uh, there are a lot of really cool things like that happening on a pretty regular basis. And it's awesome that there is an opportunity for young people through your writing to learn that not only is this an option, but it is a great way forward. Yes, yeah, that um, hair sampling. So that's been was had been done in a number of places um, in the interior. This is hair sampling for grizzly bears to yep. uh, identify individual bears and get genetic information. That's about them. the one. 
Yes. Um, the the leading lead on that on the coast was um, the Helsip Nation um, on the BC mainland coast, central coast. Um, and that's in my book too. Um, um, I talked to um, the the lead investigator on that, William Husty, um, mm -hmm. and um, and and actually his uh, niece uh, was separately involved in um, some high school work doing the same thing. So amazing, um, they're both in there. Um, yeah, and that that non-invasive um, hair sampling is has become. A, a common technique now in yeah. studying grizzlies um, that was not available back when I was doing grizzly bear research. And, and it's great because it means less interaction with the animals. And my, you know, non-scientific understanding is pretty much anything you potentially do to influence an animal you're studying will effectively influence your end data or observations as well. And that's why we don't really talk about captive wildlife studies anymore. They're just not overly helpful in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's right. Um, so it, it's, 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 there's a lot going on uh, with what you've written and looking back and you've written about owls and other birds and various other uh, wildlife subjects. Through all of this experience, are there sort of general lessons you've learned that you try and impart through your writing or, or subjects or themes that you find yourself coming back to with frequency when writing about wildlife? It varies. It, it definitely varies with, with each animal that I'm writing about or, or ecosystem. Um, but I, th I think just the, the more I write about wildlife or write about the environment, I'm just constantly amazed by this incredible world that we live in, yeah. um, you know, and, and we're uncovering new aspects of it all the time. And one of the things I love about being a writer is I get to talk to researchers who've just come out with new research and and hear about it when it's it's fresh and and they're really excited about it. Um, so I think rather than there there being sort of a a single common theme, it's it's more the the diversity of amazing stuff that's going on out there in the world. Yeah. And honestly, that is my favorite thing about being a writer too. Um, again, different paths, but this part of my job where I get to just say, Hey, you're an interesting person who does stuff with wildlife. Can I talk to you for 20 minutes? Wow. I just had my voice break. Like I was 12. Um, I said, can I talk to you for a while? It's, it's a joy to get to learn and not only learn, it's not just reading, but it's learning from people who are passionate about what they're doing and excited about what they're doing and getting to, to partake in that energy uh, that they, they put out and then be the one who gets to share their story and be the vessel for that story. It's just, it's, it's so much fun. It really it is. is. Yeah, um, exactly. And and I always love it when my research lets me go out in the field with people. Um, that's yeah. that's the best part to get to to tag along and see what they're doing and, and you know, maybe help out of it and uh, um, go back to to being a field biologist for a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, see, yeah. I tried doing that and people got mad at me for just walking around with a microscope in downtown Hamilton and looking at things. Um, <laughs> Stopping traffic, excuse me, I need to explore this sidewalk temporarily. Uh, not quite the same. 
in terms, I'm going to ask you a question that you have likely been asked a million times, but there are a lot of people out there who, who love what you do and, and would like to be able to do similar things, write or create content about wildlife and often very specifically about a more scientific side of it. So I meet a lot of young people who are going through biology programs, zoology programs, ecology programs, and want to want to create. And again, I, I use the phrase create content because in 2021, we're not just writers anymore. Everybody does everything. So, but they want to tell these stories. They want to show people the beauty or the magic in nature that a lot of folks may not see or may not have an opportunity to connect with. Would you have any advice for, for people who are interested in pursuing that uh, uh, sort of journey that you've been on? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, we're in, in an interesting time in terms of um, media it, that traditional journalism um, is a ever more challenging place to, <laughs> to work these days. Um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. But there are a lot of opportunities for people to create content and share it in other ways, um, to basically publish that content themselves. So, so there is a lot of opportunity. Um, and certainly we need more, always more, more storytellers getting the, the stories out there. So, you know, I, I think for young people who are thinking about this as a career, um, if you're passionate about it, I'd say go for it. It's not necessarily going to be easy, but it's extremely rewarding. Yep. Um, I, I can give a shout out to the Society of Environmental Journalists, which is an organization um, I belong to. Um, that's a fantastic resource for um, people who are getting into environmental journalism um, and, and also great for those of us who have been in it for a long time. So that's worth uh, checking out. And uh, yeah, I, I would say don't don't be daunted by the the obstacles um, mm -hmm. the, it's it's worth pushing through it. Absolutely. Um, uh, that there's some questions about the paycheck you might get at the end of the day that are worth exploring early on. Definitely. I think. Um, <laughs> Don't but, give up your day job right away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's I, the best advice I've ever gotten as someone interested in writing was if you want to be a writer, read and write. Yes. Those are the two steps to do to being a better writer or getting into writing of any profession is just do it. And yeah. right now, uh, although there is the a vast quantity of content on the internet, it has also never been easier to have a voice. Uh, and you know, a young person, just a, a quick anecdote and shout out, Sam Cece, uh, who is a student at Dalhousie University, she reached out to me a couple of years ago, just as a casual, hey, I've been listening to your podcast and I enjoy it. And can I chat with you sometime a bit about how you do it? And we've just casually checked in with each other. And she recently undertook this really cool Google culture project at Dalhousie, uh, which is a German agricultural practice that can create opportunities for biodiversity where you otherwise may not be able to. Um, so a short 10 minute episode on the switch recently, um, little plug, but for me, it was so thrilling to see her post a news story about her work and then send her the email saying, Hey, I'd love to interview you. Uh, mm -hmm. about what you're doing. For me, that was a, a, a joyous moment to be able to sort of then, it's like, you're now do like just, you just did it. There was, there was no great plan. There was no 
you know, e imaginary master program to get to here. She just worked at it and did it. And now that it's out there, I can turn around and say, I think this is fascinating. I want to talk to you about it for 10 minutes. And, mm -hmm. you know, get to be able to bring someone back through that cycle is fun. Um, yeah. So there's, there's always opportunities, I think is yeah. the big thing. That that's great. Um, and, and I agree, you know, that's um, the, the idea of, you know, if this is what you want to do, read or, you know, whatever, um, ab absorb what other people are doing, study what other people are doing, and then um, just start doing it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's as simple as pen to paper. And if you don't yeah. write it down, it doesn't exist. That's the other rule. Um, that's from the comedy writing people. Uh, in terms of the new book, though, when can people expect that to hit shelves? How can they stay up to date on its progress? I know on your Twitter, you've posted a couple of things about uh, Grizzly Bears of late uh, and sort of as little previews, I think, into what you're, you're writing about. But if folks do want to be up to date and they want to get their hands on this as soon as it comes out, because, you know, I, I'm a multiple of nine to 12, so I guess I can get away with it that way. <laughs> How can we, uh, as your fans, prepare to find this book when it is released? Well, um, a little bit of patience will be required because mm -hmm. it's not coming out until uh, January 2023. So we're a little okay. over a year away. Um, I, uh, I, I've been putting out a, a newsletter um, related to my, my Beaver book, and I'll start one on the, the Grizzly Bear book soon. So I guess the best place to is to uh, yeah, watch my Twitter feed, um, check out my uh, website, which mm -hmm. is backhouse.ca. And I will be updating people as, as it progresses. And certainly looking to, to start reaching out to, to people soon about it. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. And I might have to get myself a copy of the uh, 9 to 12 Beaver book too. Um, I, I've been told by a number of adults that uh, they actually kind of liked it because it, it just kind of uh, condensed the information, made it very well, easily accessible. And yeah, so that, but this, this is why I'm interested in it literally is because I spend a lot of time talking about these related issues and I, I get tired of this. I don't get tired of the sound of my own voice, obviously, but I I need fresh ways of approaching it. And, of, and one of the problems can often be I've got, and for the audience, I've got my hands far apart. I've got that much information and that much time to get it across, right? It's a, 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 a fraction of time compared to the amount of information available. Uh, and as you said, I think it's probably a great way to learn how to present some of this information too. So as advocates, uh, it could be a very powerful tool in that way. Yeah, yeah, I hope so, um, that, that it'll reach uh, a lot of people. And, and uh, I, I've even heard some kids who are younger than nine who've been enjoying it as well. So it's, it's very gratifying for me to, to reach this large new audience um, and the beaver community, which mm -hmm. uh, I never knew such the thing existed before I really got into this, but uh, the, all, all the people who are interested in, in beavers um, in Canada and the US, um, it's, it's such a dynamic community. And I'm, I'm looking forward to connecting more with the, the grizzly bear community that I'm sure is out there as well. More about Frances Backhouse, her writing and her books can be found at backhouse.ca. Francis is on Twitter at Fran B. Writes. Links for this and more are available through the show notes for this episode. 
I want to thank Frances for taking the time to chat with me and share her story and thoughts. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode, writing and Frances's work. Connect with me via Instagram and TikTok at Howie Michael or on Facebook at the Defender Radio podcast page and leave your thoughts. Remember to subscribe, rate, review, and tell a friend about the show to help us grow. The more education we get out into the world, the better we can do. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears. Thank you for listening.